We forgot to get CDs, so I have to record it on the old telephone today. Um, Let's pray first. Father God, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you are here with us. Thank you, Father, that you are the same God today, yesterday, and forever. Thank you that you never change. Thank you that you are eternal. Thank you that your character is always good. Lord, thank you that you have shown yourself to us. Thank you that you have saved us. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to have rescued us from the powers of sin and darkness and, and, and those chains with which we have locked ourselves into death. Lord, thank you that you alone have the key. Lord, that your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, thank you for sending him into the world to die for us and to break the power of sin. Thank you that you raised him to life. Lord, that we, we know that he is the first fruits of all of us who will too be raised in him and with him. Lord, thank you for your spirit that you give us to show us more of yourself. Father, thank you that when we look at you in your son, we know all that we need to know about you and who you are. But Lord, as we now look at this passage from Exodus, where you again spoke to your people that you had saved and rescued, would you, would you help us to glimpse something of you and something of what that means for us? Lord, I pray that this esoteric passage would would somehow by your spirit be transformed into life and truth for us. Lord, your word says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and encouraging and rebuking and all those things. By your spirit, for the sake of your son, Father, please help us to understand and make us more like you, more like Jesus. Amen. So let's just recap. We're we're busy in Exodus. Uh, We have just finished the Ten Commandments. We we flew through it. Oh. What? Taryn's giving me a message that I should tuck in my shirt. (laughs) Where would I be without my wife? Or to put it even better, where would you poor people be without my wife? You'd see me without my shirt tucked in. (laughs) And I've embarrassed her. Um, Sorry, (laughs) Taryn. Right, let's start again. We have just just finished the Ten Commandments. Uh, We did it over two weeks and we saw that, that really we can sum up the Ten Commandments by saying that it's all about... Um, thinking right, speaking right, and doing right uh, according to who God is. So do we think right about God is the first two commandments. Um, do we say the right thing about God? Do we misuse His name? Do we, do we honor God with what we say? Um, does what we think about God find expression in what we say? And then also, are we imitators of God? Does what we do reflect something of who God is? And then we saw in the last six commandments that, that really these same three uh, spheres translate into how we react with each other. So what do we do? 
do we in our relationships with one another honor the fact that we are made in the image of God? Or, or do we murder? Do we lie? Do we commit adultery? Which, and we saw that all of these things are, are actually uh, looking at the other person and saying, you are not made in the image of God, or, or I will not treat you as important. And God says, actually, these people are made in my image, and as you relate with them, you are meant to treat them uh, with respect, because they represent me in some way. Uh, even the families we saw uh, stood for um, that relationship between God and his people. And then we saw also that, that in terms of what we say to one another, we should reflect something of who God is. And so God says, do not commit false testimony, I think is the ninth commandment. Uh, and we saw that really this is just saying to us that, that when we deal with each other, are we going to be people of the truth? Why? Because God is truth. And then we saw right at the end that, that really all of this uh, doing it and, and speaking comes out of who we are. And the tenth commandment, the one about coveting, um, is, is really like a summary commandment because it speaks about what is happening inside our heads. Are we thinking about our lives uh, in terms of what I can get? Are we idolizing things? Are we uh, jealous of other people? Are we envious? Um, all of these things, do we think right about God and out of that think right about people? And so we saw Moses there speaking with God. Uh, the people are trembling and afraid. Moses says, hey, God's testing you. And now chapter 21, Moses is up on the mountain and God starts giving him some instructions. Goes till about the middle of chapter 24, verse 12-ish. Uh, it's, it's called the Book of the Covenant. And it's an interesting um, book. As I said, some of these things we look at and we go, what? what? How on earth does that apply to us? Well, let's have a read and, and hopefully we'll see. Exodus chapter 21. Uh, these are the regulations you must present to Israel, says God to Moses. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years and set him free in the seventh year and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he came to you, uh, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed from him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and he had sons and daughters and then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to the master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I don't want to go free. If he says this, the master must present him before God, and then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. And after that, the slave will serve his master for life. And when a man sells his daughter as a slave, I mean, already, are you guys thinking, wow, this is so... Reaches exactly where I am. Okay. Any, anyone with daughters? Okay, listen up here. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years. That's not fair, as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. What? Um, but he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave but as a daughter. And if a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect 
the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. Uh, Abraham, Hagar, Sarah. Interesting stories, those. Um, You remember what happened there? Uh, Sarah said to Abraham, look, I'm not going to have kids. Take Hagar, my slave wife. Uh, She got pregnant. Eventually, God said, actually, no, I, I meant you and Sarah. Sarah gets pregnant, gets jealous, and we end up seeing Hagar, the slave wife, being sent away. Wow. And God says over here, um, that's actually not on. If the master uh, or the man who married the slave wife fails in any of these three obligations, the slave wife may leave as a free woman without making any payment. Now, anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. Uh, But if it was simply an accident um, permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from my altar and be put to death. And anyone who strikes a father or mother must be put to death. Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. Uh, Now, anyone who dishonors mother or father must be put to death. Now, suppose two men quarrel and one hits another with a stone or a fist and the injured person doesn't die but is confined to bed. Uh, If he is later able to walk outside, uh, even with a crutch, uh, the assailant will not be punished but must compensate the victim for lost wages and provide for his full recovery. And if you beat a male or female slave with a club and the slave dies, the owner must be punished. Um, If the slave recovers, uh, within a day or two, the owner shall not be punished since the slave is his property. Uh, Now imagine two men are fighting and, and, and they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely. Uh, If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands, and the judges approve. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury a life for a life. Um, uh, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Uh, If a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is taken out and the man is blinded, the slave must go free as compensation. And if you knock out the tooth of your male or female slave, uh, free as compensation. And if an ox... Anyone got an ox at home? Uh, if an ox galls a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its flesh may not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring and the owner had not been informed... Sorry, had been informed but failed to keep it under control. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned and the owner must also be put to death. Uh, But the dead person's relatives may accept payment as compensation for the loss of life. Uh, And the owner of the ox may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. And the same applies if it's a boy or a girl. uh, uh, But if it's a male or female slave, um, the owner of the ox must pay 30 silver coins as compensation and the ox must be killed. Um, and imagine you dig a pit and you, or you leave it uncovered and somebody's donkey or ox falls into it. Um, you've got to pay full compensation, but you get to keep the animal. Um, and if your ox injures another ox and the injured ox dies, then you've got to sell your animal and share the proceeds equally and you get to divide the dead animal equally as well, except if your ox had a habit of doing it, in which case the other person gets everything. May the Lord bless to us this reading. <laughs> wow! I said to Terry a few times this week, I said, 
What on earth am I going to say here? How on earth do I link this through to us today? I mean, it is, it is highly unlikely that my ox is going to gore you to death. It, it, it's quite unlikely that if we ever had, have uh, a girl daughters that I'm going to sell them into slavery. Uh, quite unlikely. I might go to jail for that. Donkeys kill more people each year than motorbikes. Wow. That's incredible. And yet the Bible doesn't mention motorbikes. (laughs) (laughs) Only in Kings. (laughs) David's triumph. I like it. What do we do with a passage like this? I'm... I want to suggest to us that that as we start looking at God's giving laws and instructions to his people, we've got to think of it in terms of what God intends and where we are actually at. So we see the reason God gives his people instructions is A, because he has redeemed them. And because he has redeemed them, he says to them, be holy as I am holy. These instructions from God are are instructions so that the people of God can be as God is. Can be holy, can live good, upright, perfect lives. We were discussing at youth group on Friday what sin is. And we said if you've got a big target there, um, then, then sin is not hitting the bullseye every time. So sin is missing the mark. And, and, and what we got here is God saying to his people, I want to show you what it means to live as my people uh, so that you don't keep missing the marks in your lives and in your behaviors. Uh, and yet, as we come to this situation, we find that God doesn't come to a people who are already 98% brilliant. In fact, just a few chapters from now, there's going to be the whole golden calf incident. You see, what God does, God says, I have rescued you, I have saved you. And then he speaks into these people who are rescued, who are saved, who are God's people, and yet who are a mess. And who live in a very, very messy world. And so God says, into a broken context, into a broken world, and so you see on the bulletin, I changed the title a little bit. I said, being like God in a broken world. Because that's what God is, is calling his people to be. He says, be like me. And I, I think it's the same call for us. Be like me in a world that is full of brokenness. Um, Queen Victoria's first prime minister, um, Lord Melbourne once reputedly said, oh, if, if religion is going to invade a person's private life, <laughs> things have come to a pretty pass. There's a man who thought that religion was something you pack away nicely into a little box for Sunday morning. Uh, sorry, I just folded that up. You pack it up nicely into a little box for Sunday morning, you open it up, You leave church, you fold it away again, live the rest of your life. But as we come to Exodus 
21 forwards, in fact the whole of the Bible, we find ourselves face to face with the God who says, I am calling you to be like me in every single part of your life. In every single part of your life. And I think we've got to also say, to really know how to deal with this, that when God gives his instructions... He is speaking to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. If God was giving us the Ten Commandments today, in our Western context, um, where most of us live in cities... I doubt there would have been as much emphasis on donkeys and oxes. And yet, as we look at this, we see that God who speaks to particular people at a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular context, for a particular purpose, we see that it is still the one God. And the amazing thing is that as God speaks to this particular people, particular place, particular purpose, particular context we see something of the character of God. And if the point of God's instructions is to make us like Him, then I think what we need to do is we need to read not only the instructions, but we need to say, well, what does this say about who God is and where God's priorities lie? So one of the amazing things is that God meets us, meets his people, where we are at. And part of that here is that God starts this discussion with slavery. Now if you were starting off and you were talking about uh, all these instructions for a brand new nation about to go into the land, it would take 40 years because of their rebellion. If you were about to to start the set of how to be like God, would you start with slavery? Surely you'd skip ahead to verse 12 and go, right, let's talk about murder. That's a biggie. But, but God starts this, this instructions to his people through Moses with slavery. And I think it's probably because the Israelites have just come out of slavery. They have just been brought out, rescued by God. And so slavery is something that is, that is up there in their heads. They know what it's like to be oppressed. They know what it's like to be under the feet of someone. And God turns around and says, when you buy a Hebrew slave. And we look at that and we go, well, why are you buying a Hebrew slave? Surely you know that slavery is not nice. And this is what I mean when I say God meets us where we're at. God comes to a context and a a circumstance where slavery was, it was just everywhere. That was society. And by the way, when we talk about slavery in the Old Testament, it's not the same as slavery we we think of in the movies. Um, The African-American, European slavery style thing, very different. Um, and, And in particular, very different because here in the Hebrews... Amongst God's people, God sets limits. Uh, And so we see that 
that slavery was just a, it was a way of life. This is how the nations operated in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East. But God comes and he says, right, well actually, I'm going to put some safeguards up against this. Uh, and so if you buy a slave, well actually, you only get a slave for six years max. Because in the seventh year, you have to set him free. And it's all fair and above board. If he comes in by himself, he goes by himself. If he comes in married, his whole family leaves married. Um, there's a sense of fairness, but, but there's also a, a, a sense of grace because, because here is a person who is in slavery and yet when he leaves, the, the, the system, God's system has an inbuilt reset switch. Somebody gets to start again. Uh, in those days, um, if you ran out of money or you owed lots of money and you'd sold all your stuff, probably your only option was to sell yourself into slavery for six years or, or seven years. Um, the, and and it, you, you basically took a job to pay off your debt. Except you didn't get any money for it, you just got your debt wiped off. This is an odd passage. And, and what about the woman? So if you're a bloke, you get six years. Seventh year, you get set free. Fantastic. Isn't that wonderful? That God says, right, in a context where everybody has slaves, I'm going I'm to set limits and, and I'm going to give you grace so that you get to start again, except if you happen to be a woman, because in that case, you get to stay there for life. Why? Why don't the women get set free? Well, in that society, um, if you wanted to find out the lowest of the low, you would go and visit a woman. Because women had an incredibly low social status, even lower than slaves, and yet God takes care to give rights to even the female slaves. Um, and why don't they get set free? Um, because, well, because it's better for them to stay in slavery than to be set free in that culture. Uh, what do I mean by there? Um, well, let's, let's have a look at, at what happens here. If a master buys someone's daughter for his son to marry, um, then his, that person is no longer a slave but a daughter. So you can't be set free from being a daughter. Now, if someone buys a slave and marries her, as we saw, um, then this person cannot just set her free after six years. Even if um, the slave doesn't satisfy the master. I mean, what, what are your options if you have been a female slave and you get set free? You can't go back to your father's house. In that society, you, you cannot set up by yourself. Uh, in fact, the only option, who's going to want to marry you? Because who knows what your master has done? The only option would be to enter um, the life of a prostitute. And so God says, right, it's, it's actually going to be better for that not to happen. And so we'll keep you in slavery. Did anyone watch the Q&A episode uh, where Kevin Rudd... Do you want to mention that quickly, Mark? 
What was interesting there is that Kevin Rudd turned around and said, well, uh, if you want to say that homosexuality is wrong, then you also got to say that slavery is wrong, and yet the Bible says slavery is right, so we can't really trust the Bible. Wouldn't it have been so much easier if in Exodus chapter 21, God turned around and said, let's just abolish slavery. I mean, does the Bible condone slavery? Um, no. No, I don't think the Bible does condone slavery. I think what God is doing here is meeting his people where they are at. So they're in a situation where everybody has slaves, and instead of just changing things like that, God puts safeguards around it. And, and we see that as the story of the Bible progresses, we see that actually not only are there safeguards needed, but in, in actual fact we need to actually be set free from slavery because when Christ comes we are all set free. And we are all one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And so the whole story of the Bible leads up to saying that slavery is wrong. That, that's why William Wilberforce um, had the big thing in the British Parliament in uh, this, the song Amazing Grace comes from that as well, where, where the setting free of the slaves, because they read the whole of the Bible and didn't stop uh, in Exodus. But what God does here, he comes into the situation and he says, you know what, I want you to be like me, but I want to start by at least treating people better than everyone else around you. You see, some of the stuff that God asks is unheard of in the surrounding nations. Yes, everyone has slaves, and again, they're not slaves the way we think slaves. They're, they're more like uh, unpaid workers uh, who get food and clothing and accommodation and all of those things. But, but the fact that if you punch your slave's eye and he goes blind, that all of a sudden you lose your slave... Every nation around Israel would have gone, you guys are nuts. The idea that you have a slave and in the seventh year you set that slave free, everyone around would have gone, you guys are nuts. Why do you do that? And they would have turned around and said, we do it because God said to do it. And they would have said, well, why did God say to do it? And they would have said, well, because God values us. And because we know that God saved us from slavery. And we know that God is the God who sets free. And so we cannot just treat people like things. We treat them as people. And God, all the way through these commandments, He treats people as people. He treats the female slaves as people. He's concerned for their safety. He's concerned for their well-being. We read about, in verses 12 to 36, we read about justice. And, and why is it so important to, to kill an ox if it causes someone to death? Well, it's important because that's a person. And why is that important? Because that person is one of God's people. 
In fact, uh, Deuteronomy says that when a slave was set free, it wasn't just, okay, goodbye. Deuteronomy 15 says that when you set a slave free, the master had to give him uh, lots of stuff from his flock and from his field. So if you were a slave after six years, you leave with a bonus. How do slaves leave with a bonus? Well, because God says, look at what happened when you came out of Egypt. You plundered the Egyptians. Well, what's the point of the whole slavery passage? God places limits on potentially abusive situations. God meets us where we're at. I'm going to just quickly fly through the last few verses there. The God who is fair and who is just. Um, And we see that when God speaks to Moses and gives these rules, he says, in all of your dealings with each other, I expect you to treat each other fairly. And so if you commit murder, if it's premeditated, if you run into the temple, if you run into the church and you're holding on to the church altar, God says, drag them away from you. Because that is a person that you've killed. That is someone made in my image. And yet God is also fair and says if it was an accident, then I'm going to give a place of safety where they can hide and, and, and live without fear of, of reprisal from the family. And we got the death penalty for dishonoring our parents. That's a tough one. <laughs> Um, I think most of us here would probably be dead. <laughs> I mean, murder is fine. Kidnap, fine. I can, I, still, but okay. Death penalty, but dishonoring parents? What's the deal with that? Well, again, it's because parents are, are in, in this uh, Israelite life, in the, in the life of God's people, are representatives of God to their children. And so to dishonor them is to symbolically dishonor God. And God is again just calling his people to be different. He says we live in a world where where dishonoring parents is the norm and I want you to be different. And I'm serious about it. We come to this thing in verse 22 to 25. One of those really famous verses where two blokes are having a fight and they accidentally knock a woman and she has a a miscarriage and, and... People have used this to refer refer to abortion. I'm not sure it's about abortion here. Um, But this is just something that happens. Um, And and the big point there is that God says, well, the punishment should fit the crime. If you've lost a tooth, the punishment should be losing a tooth. An eye, an eye. A bruise, a bruise. A burn, a burn. In other words, don't punish more than than the crime. Don't punish less than the crime, but don't punish more than the crime. Just be fair, is what God is saying. Um, In terms of legal system, I wonder where we're at in that one. Um, We've got horrible stories about being sent to Australia for stealing a loaf of bread. uh, Or being hung for stealing a sheep, or 
being put in prison for life for telling the world about atrocities. Uh, who's that, that American army guy? He, interesting story there, what happens? He saw atrocities being committed and he told the world and now he goes to jail for life. Is that eye for an eye? Is that tooth for a tooth? And God also says, well, we've got to take the intention into account. If your ox kills someone, um, then you've got to kill the ox. Uh, but you're okay. But, but if, you, if you knew about it and you still let that ox run around, you're going to suffer the consequences as well. What are your intentions, says God? What does it all mean for us? What on earth do we take away from this passage? I want to say to us that it, the question isn't whether the Old Testament is relevant, uh, relevant for us, but, but how is it relevant for us? Um, and well, we could say let's apply the principles but not the laws. But how do we figure out what the principles are? Um, and, and when we look at how the New Testament deals with these things, it's not even clear there because in some places we read that Christ has fulfilled the law and therefore it has no more power over us, which is wonderful and which is true. And then again, we find Paul uh, in Ephesians 6.2, he goes and quotes the bit about parents and children honoring your parents and, and we see actually, you know, we've got to still hold on to that one. So it's abolished in Christ, uh, and yet we still got to, well, it's fulfilled in Christ, we still got to hold on to it. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, Paul quotes a bit and he says, well, this, this principle applies over here. So, so how on earth do we deal with the Old Testament laws and instructions? How do we bring them to us today? Do I just read through and go, I'll do that one. Don't like that one. Unlikely to do that one. Okay, I'll choose. Do we just pick and choose which, which commandments we take and which commandments we leave? I want to suggest to you that the, the key to understanding this, that's what I said near the beginning, is, is not to focus so much on me now, but to focus on the people to whom God was speaking originally. I mean, it does apply to me now, but what was God saying to those people then? And so I don't read this and say, what are the principles that I can extract so that I can have a set of rules and regulations? Because when Christ came, Jesus said that he came to release us. And in Christ, we are set free from rules and regulations. We have a new way of the Spirit. And the Spirit shows us Jesus. And the point of, of following Jesus is not to follow rules and regulations, but to follow the character of Christ. And so as I read through the Old Testament, what I'm doing is not picking and choosing which ones apply to me. I'm reading and going, well, what on earth does this say about who God is? And so I read this and I say, well, God is the God who comes to us in the midst of our brokenness. And God is the God who doesn't say change 100% straight away, but instead leads us on a journey 
towards where he is taking us. And, and slavery is the ideal one. He doesn't go right from the beginning, no more slavery. He said, right, let's tweak things a bit. Let's make it more like me, more like me, more like me, more like me. Here is Christ. And, and we read on and we find Paul says to the slaves, okay, be content with your lot. But if you can be set free, be set free. And so we see that God is the one who slowly works us towards being more like Him. God is concerned about our progressive, we call it sanctification, being made like God. And we look at the stories of of, uh, uh, parents and murder and oxes and donkeys and pits and all these things. And we look at them and we go, what? And we say, well, it tells us something about how God feels about people. God values people. God values families because they say something about His relationship with His people. And we say that that when God values people, that says that we must value people because God loves us. And so we learn that God's character is to value those things which He created. And we learn also that God's character is to be fair and just. And God doesn't just wipe everyone out. He says, well, if it was an accident, then I'm going to give you a place of safety. And, and, and if, if your ox kills another ox, then I'm going to be fair. Be fair, says God, basically, because I am the God who is just. You see, if we read all of the commandments in terms of who God is, it's more difficult because we have to understand the context in which he's writing. But I, I, I think that helps us to really understand and translate these things for us today. My ox is not going to gore your ox. But I know if I, if, if I go and bump your car and put a big dent in it, I know it to be fair and just because God is fair and just. If you run over my dog or my child on purpose. I know that God is fair and just and you should be punished. But if you do it by accident, I know that God is fair and just. And how can I punish you if it was an accident? I mean, Jesus has exactly the same call in our lives today um, to be holy And just like then, he speaks to us as people who are already saved. But, and this is my final point, but the law of Jesus shows us more of God than the law of Moses. You see, we're looking for the character of God. And if we want to see God most clearly, we look at Jesus. And God said to Moses, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus said, well, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if they strike you on the right cheek, give them the left cheek. And if they ask for your uh, tunic, they ask for your shirt, give them your jacket as well. And if someone says, you walk with me a mile, go with them two miles. You see what Jesus says here? He says, yes, God is the God of fairness and justice, but he is also the God of grace and mercy.
That's why, brothers and sisters, we need to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Not just as a series of stories. Not just as a series of instructions. Certainly not as a list of checkboxes to get right with God because we are right with God when He speaks to us. The Bible is the story of God saying, this is who I am. Will you follow me? I have saved you. I love you. Will you be imitators of Christ? Will you be imitators of me? So you probably won't have slaves and you probably won't have oxes. But you certainly do have a God who is just the same then as he is today. Amen.